Tell of Falava, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up. The last time we've had a storm of this magnitude was more than 20 years ago. Recovery for Guam is slow but promising following Typhoon Moa. Also, impacts of Mount Bagana's eruption are still being felt. And later. So at the age of 49, that was what was you know, going through my head. So it was pretty devastating. Breast cancer death rates remain high for Māori and Pacifica women. Power and water has almost completely returned to Guam after Category 4 Typhoon Mawa made landfall in late May, pummeling the U.S. territory with strong winds and heavy rainfall. Nick DeGaudo of Guam News says the recovery has been much faster than past typhoons, but it's still slower than what it should be. He speaks with Caleb Fotheringham about the response. We're two months on now, around about that, from Typhoon Mawa. Where are we at now with the response? The recovery, I want to say, is closer to 100% and surprisingly has moved much quicker than we experienced in large typhoons of the past. Mostly has to do with just the time frame and the uh, structure and capabilities that we're in right now. I mean, the last time we've had a storm of this magnitude was more than 20 years ago. So you can imagine just how much stronger the infrastructure has been uh, upgraded in the past two decades. So it looks like, for the most part, a lot of the island, the greenery is from what the storm has taken away, and close to 100% of power and water has been restored as well. That's great news. And are people still living in shelters? We do still have a couple of the shelters open up north, but those are mostly for families who were either did not have a place to call home, they were homeless prior to the storm, or they were living in substandard housing, that's housing that was maybe wood or tin, and they're still waiting for that additional assistance to get them back on their feet. But the numbers have, for the most part, dropped significantly since the storm weeks ago. I heard maybe about a month after the storm hit, there was COVID outbreaks and flu outbreaks within the shelters. Did that continue on? That's actually what happened. The COVID and the influenza outbreak was startling because the government and the uh, first responders and the volunteers were just doing whatever they could to find a space to put these shelteries in. And unfortunately, the location that they put them in at the time was not up to par, not not in a place where they can safely distance themselves. And so that's why we had that type of outbreak. Fortunately, after that happened in the couple of weeks following, the government was able to secure a safer space that had air conditioning, it had better spacing for those shelteries, and so thankfully those numbers have subsided. Well, that's good news. And just back to what you said previously about water and power, almost 100% back, which is mm-hmm. great. Where are the areas that are taking a little bit longer to get water and power restored? When I mean close to 100%, it's literally less than uh, one percentage that the Guam Power Authority, the local utilities company reports, is still left in the dark. And this, again, is mostly in the northern part of the island, a village called Chigo, which also is where the Anderson Air Force Base is located, because that's where the part of the island that was hit the hardest. That's where the closest of the center of the storm was located two months ago. And so those are the areas that they still have yet to get completely up and running. How have people on the ground found it? Are they pleased with the response? At this point, it seems the majority of the people, they have turned a tide in just the way that they felt initially in the weeks that followed. Obviously, many of the people felt the government and, and the people weren't moving fast enough to restore 
uh, everything that's needed, including the utilities. They're pretty much just tired and fed up from the way of life following the storm. But because uh, it has been a while again since we've been through something like this, think people are slowly starting to feel better. And I can give you a great example of just how much positivity is being expressed around the island. Just last Friday, the island celebrated 79 years since being liberated from Japanese occupation since the American military liberated the island. And so while we didn't have a huge parade and an all-out celebration that we normally would have, there was still a block party, there was still prayers, there were still memorials to show just how resilient we are and how we're not letting the storm stop us from living our everyday lives as much as possible. When we started the conversation, you said that it's been faster than previous storms. And I know it's 20 years ago mm-hmm. that you said that there was last a storm similar to this one. How long did that recovery take? From what, from what I recall, because I believe I was only, what, 14, 13, 14 years old at the time, it took months. It took months for the island to get back on its feet. And I'm talking about six months plus, because then the island had a lot of wooden power poles. So that was a struggle for the local utility company to get back up, to get it repaired, and just move everything that was destroyed and knocked over by the storm then. I think that the only thing I can say left is that this now proves that Guam needs to do more starting today. Uh, and and they, the government officials have said this is their proof that they need to do more to be even more prepared because we don't want to wait two months. We don't want to wait all these eight weeks for power to be at 100%. You know, we should be seeing faster movement, faster progress. Um, and so if there's anything uh, this, this past storm has told us, type of malware has told us, is that the lesson is we need to prepare and you can never be too prepared. Ashfall from the erupting Mount Bagana in central Bougainville has collapsed a number of traditional houses. Mount Bagana began erupting for the first time in 11 years more than two weeks ago, depositing ash over a broad area with lava flowing into rivers surrounding the mountain. A cabinet minister in the government of the autonomous Papua New Guinea region, Fionila Roka Matbob, told Don Wiseman that while the threat has been downgraded to level two, the impact is being widely felt. Pollution, I should say, with the ash as well, are impacting over at least almost 7,800 deaths on record that we have. But there are many more who are leaving their homes because um, the hash falls is actually contributing to adding waste on houses as well. For those who live, you know, in very traditional communities, because that's more like the rural part of Bougainville where people still live in the most harmonious, you know, traditional kind of life. So that has contributed a lot with the ash for collapsing homes where the ashes seem to be having a lot of weight added on the on the stego palms that serves as the roofing and also ash falls on crops, water sources. Those are basically the areas where they've been directly impacted and also um, very serious high irritation and diarrhea on the health front. So how many houses do you think will have collapsed? I don't really have the recorded data, but according to my coordinators on the ground, they've reported over 15 houses so far. And how many people are affected by the 
problems with food and ash in the water and so on? Those that were evicted in first instance were 7,800, but another, I mean, on every single daily basis, there are people being evicted from the mountain areas into the care center. We only have two care centers at the moment, but it's most likely it has to grow because by today, we received in the morning about 1,000 people now moved into the care centers. All right, and so that's that's at Torakina and Dwakunai? Torakina and Dwakunai, yep. Clearly, you need a whole lot more space. Are more going to be open? What's what's the government doing? So what the government is doing is we're basically taking care of the people in the care centres, the you know the impacted people in the care centres by supplying food, food items, non-food items, and the Department of Health as well is working very closely to address the outbreak. Because, I mean, given that people are going to be in just two care centers, it's most likely that the outbreak is going to become even more serious than it was a week ago. Is the volcano still exploding at this point? It is, it is, but it has gone down from the record, I mean, report we obtained in the morning. It has gone down from level three to now level two. 1,000 people or about a 1,000 people in the care centres, but you need more space, or what's happening to those other ones at this stage? I think the space at the moment still is OK because Torokina and Muakunai, um, they actually have really big space that is, you know, open for further expansion. But because of the outbreak of eye irritation and also diarrhoea, they're looking at, most likely, but not immediately, for a possible expansion. And there are people from other areas, like around Panguna as well. People are asking if some of the people can be moved further out from the impacted community areas. So there's a lot going on. While the government is doing what it can in terms of making sure that things are under control, people themselves are also doing, you know, voluntary donations and everything in terms of clothing items and food. And they're continuously looking after the people in the care centres. Breast cancer remains deadlier for Māori and Pacifica women in New Zealand. A report released last year revealed Māori women are 33% more likely to die within 10 years of diagnosis. And for Pacifica women, the odds are even higher at 52%. I spoke with several people about the issue. Waking up to see another day is a gift for Ngāti Whakaue, Tuhaurangi and Kuki Airani mum of three, Maria Marama. But it was eight years ago that she was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. Before then, she'd been fit and healthy. Her diagnosis came as a shock. Immediately I thought, I'm going to die, and then I was angry because I'd done the right things. So I was really confused about why I'd come out with this, you know, pretty... Um, terrible outcome and um, and then my doctor said that you know he'd refer me to the breast clinic because I had private medical insurance um, and that started my journey but I was pretty gutted and then I also thought about I'm not going to be here for my kids who at that stage I had a child that was um, just starting intermediate and then I had two older ones and I thought I'm not going to be around for my youngest daughter 
and then I thought I'm not even going to be here for my mukapuna. So at the age of 49, that was what was you know going through my head. So it was pretty devastating. What followed was a long journey that saw Maria undergo chemotherapy, radiation, herceptin treatment, and reconstruction surgery. Having gone through the private health system for most of her treatment, Maria says her experience with the public health system was unpleasant. I think for Māori and Pacific, we kind of herded through a pathway that's quick, dirty and nasty, if I can put it that way, um, because the system is um, it's busy. There are a lot of us. But Māori and Pacific have to make their way into the system first, so I think there's some access issues around um, mammogram and screening and how Māori women and Pacific women are um, educated around um, the need to have those done. Last year, the Breast Cancer Foundation published its first and biggest study of its national register. 30,000 patients were covered in the reports with damning results for Māori and Pacifica women. Māori wahine are 33% likely to die within 10 years of being diagnosed and Pacifica 52%. While overall survival rates have improved, Māori and Pacifica women still have higher breast cancer mortality, lower breast screening rates and are underrepresented in clinical trials research when compared to the wider population. Dr Olivia Pirellini, who is one of the few Pacifica oncologists in New Zealand, says improving the stats requires the public health system to be an accurate reflection of the community it serves. My first thought is representation matters. Who's on the clinical trial leads? Who's on the governance committees um, to make sure that the trials are actually going to benefit Māori and Pacifica? The trials are um, inviting to that. Chairman of the Pacifica GP Network, Dr Api Talimaitonga, says while he has faith in the public health system, it needs to be culturally safe. In my experience as a GP, when people understand what it is about, when you speak to them in their language, when you have a support person that can translate it uh, for them, they will come. Because to have a mammogram, to participate in clinical trials... They will understand how important it is for them, not just for their health, but for their family and Ainga and the role that they play in that. Tomorrow, Maria will be on a panel sharing her story at a breast cancer trials Q&A event held at the Auckland Museum. So I'd like to see, as an outcome to this, more Māori and Pacific researchers researching breast cancer on our behalf so that there is a culturally uh, responsive um, system that is informed by research that's done by Māori and Pacifica. When asked how she views life now having survived breast cancer, she says she's never going to give up. No one's going to tell me that you've only got five years to live. I'm going to make sure that and do everything that I can to ensure my longevity so that I am here for my mukupuna. So... And yeah, so it is about attitude, it is about your perspective on life, and that life is worth living. That's Pacific Waves for today. Don't forget you can listen back on rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, to fast 34.